Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Missing and Unexplained podcast. I know it's been a while since you've heard from me, so I'm happy to say, in light of my favorite time of year, Halloween, I have a couple of one-off episodes to share with you. In this first Halloween special, I sat down with friend and author Shannon Sin to talk about a resident Vancouver Island phantom ship called the Valencia. The story of the Valencia goes like this. On a cold, wintry night in January of 1906, the steamship Valencia captained by Oscar Marcus Johnson and carrying 173 souls, ran aground in one of the most dangerous places on Earth, the graveyard of the Pacific. The ship was bound for Victoria, then Seattle, but instead floundered for almost three days off the rugged west coast of Vancouver Island. For days, passengers clung to the ship, waiting for help. In the end, only 37 souls would survive the ordeal. Not a single woman or child survived. After the sinking, the press declared the government's inaction on improving life-saving stations along the West Coast as wholesale murder. Both Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier and U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt ordered investigations into the sinking and were forced to address the inadequacies of life-saving devices for shipwrecked mariners on the West Coast. The sinking of the Valencia also created one of the most iconic hiking trails on the planet, the West Coast Trail, and evoked the locals into talking of a resident ghost ship. In his book, The Haunting of Vancouver Island, Shannon Sin reveals some of the folklore and myths surrounding the phantom ship. We have a mutual interest in this subject as I have been researching the wreck for years with plans to hopefully write a book about the sinking. We got together recently on a cool autumn evening in person to talk about the ship, folklore in general, and the new book Shannon is working on. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And I like it. We've yeah. got we've got beers. We've got a candle and like we're... Halloween stuff around us. Yeah. yeah, that's the whole reason for doing this. Well, I thanks for coming on the show and doing this. I uh, 
Yeah. Well, we've been we've been well, we were acquaintances, and now I'd say we're friends. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's it's been really really cool. And um, we met um, basically because of your book, The Hauntings of Vancouver Island. And uh, we're here today to talk about the Valencia and ghost ships and folklore and myths. And um, well, I wanted to start with something easy because I know you did a ton of research um, for your book. That's something that I think we bonded over is our dedication to research and trying to tell the truth, if there is a truth for these things. Um, I guess I guess the best version of a story you can find according to facts, right? Like that would be it. Um, I'm wondering, do you remember when you were researching this, do you remember when you came across the Valencia and what you thought? Like, do you have any memories of that, finding that story early on and, um, you know, how you felt about it? Or maybe you thought, oh, this would be good for the book. Yeah. Um, I was trying to have a collection that best represented Vancouver Island while keeping each chapter, each subject kind of different. So like there's like the headless woman, um, there's the a woman that walks in water. There's a skull-faced bishop. Um, there's stuff that's rural, stuff that's suburban. And the Valencia, of course, is our ghost ship, Vancouver Island's ghost ship, but it's also um, one of the more famous ghost ships in the world. And um, for the West Coast, it might be... I, I might even be able to say it's the most famous ghost ship on the West Coast, like going down, including the the United States. Um, and by by that I mean phantom ship. Uh, there's, of course, there's ghost ship stories as well, which is like, um, you know, unmanned stories of unmanned ships. Um, but I believe my coming across the story predates my decision to write the book by quite a few years. I think the first time I ever read about it, and I'm just kind of taking this off the top of my head, head i might be wrong but i believe it was in um, barbara smith's book which is a collection of ghost stories of british columbia um there's joanne christensen also wrote a book around the same time about stories in british columbia and both of them have a lot of the same stories and they're mostly like lower mainland stories and uh a lot of like heavy on Victoria and, and such, but uh, one of them, if not both of them, I mentioned the Valencia, and that's kind of what I remember early on. I wanted to pick up off something that you said there uh, because this is something in my research for this podcast that I found out there aren't a lot of ghost ship or phantom ship legends on the West Coast. Most of them are on the Atlantic Coast, the Great Lakes, when you're talking about North America. And I mean, maybe we don't have an answer for this, but I'm wondering. Like, why would that be? Maybe it's just, it's more of a predominant narrative on the East Coast? Like, it seems kind of strange that it wouldn't be more of a thing here on the West Coast. Yeah, um, I mentioned to you before this interview that I'm currently researching um, my uh, another book. It, it'll be on ghost stories throughout British Columbia instead of just Vancouver Island. And I did come across the mention of two other ghost ship stories, again, phantom ships, um, on in British Columbia, but the stories aren't as as filled out. There, it's just mentioned um, in the 19th century, and I, th- I think it was the 1870s, in uh, a report by a geologist uh, that an uh, indigenous medicine man had told him about these stories. And then when I researched deeper, I found that uh, the two vessels that he mentioned there ha- there were two vessels that 
that were destroyed and sank there. So it kind of was interesting. I think that um, the, the biggest factor isn't necessarily anything other than us not having a longer tradition of newspapers reporting on the coast. Uh, the the ideas, some of these ideas of like the older ghost stories and stuff, it's not that they didn't exist here. It's that the newspaper wasn't necessarily reporting um, back early enough. Um, so like the HBC traders were here, especially on the coast. And there's even oral stories of stuff with the Spanish that people are still trying to decide if they actually happened or not um, amongst the indigenous groups that I think that they did if uh, some of these groups have more than or uh, more than one group is having the same story but uh, yeah there's there's the stories were here and I think a lot of times they were forgotten over time yeah, and I, I really liked your point there about newspapers, uh, because I think that is such a, as a researcher and as writers, that is such a valuable tool for us. And if it if they're not around and they don't exist, it's really hard to find information that goes back potentially hundreds of years. So that's, that's a really good point. Um, I want to ask you about maybe some other um, folklore stuff that you're working on now, but let's, let's talk about the Valencia before we get too much into your latest book that you're working on right now. Um, you kind of already talked about how you stumbled into the ghost ship, phantom ship narrative with the Valencia. Um, at, at the top of this, I gave a pretty thorough description of the sinking, so we don't have to talk about that too much, but what I want do want to talk about is something in your book. You mentioned this kind of like Bermuda Triangle at the, at the mouth of the Strait of the Juan de Fuca, and I'm wondering... Um, can you can you tell me and and the listeners like what that is and how that plays into the Valencia story because it's something that having researched this ship for years I had actually never heard of until I read your book so I was kind of blown away and um, well I was blown away about a few other things about your book but that was one of the things where I was like that's something I've absolutely never heard about being a factor um, into the Valencia sinking so can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, um, I think the. It was going through the newspapers at the time. There's a lot of, as you know from researching the Valencia, a lot of finger pointing was going on, a lot of blame, a lot of people were trying to decide whose fault it was. And one of the things that I noticed that kept coming up was this um, kind of, I guess, the more supernatural elements. Uh, one of the things that I had also mentioned in the book, and I think I mentioned this actually right beside the part about the bermuda triangle like legend is that there was also like people claiming to have had premonitions that they knew that the ship was going to sink or they were scared and they didn't show up for the sailing or they missed the sailing which is quite common when ships end up having a, a tragic end to have that sort of story and one of the things people really were trying to understand is why if the ship was going traveling through the fog why wasn't why didn't it hear the foghorn and so people were the newspapers specifically and people being quoted were kind of um leaning back on this idea that there was like this um sort of supernatural thing going on in in the opening of the one to fuca strait where sometimes people just couldn't hear the the foghorn and it was Disproven because it turned out that the foghorn wasn't sounding because the fog was only offshore. And then eventually, I think it was 
the late 1920s, they found that there was an actual problem with the foghorn. I think it was race rocks is where it was, but uh, the actual problem was where the foghorn was placed. So even though the foghorn was placed in an area that people couldn't hear it for because the acoustics, for whatever reason, were muffled, um, it wasn't really a factor because it wasn't sounding at all. The the commission reports um, had decided after researching it. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I definitely think probably played a factor. Um, There's a lot that went wrong uh, for the Valencia for it to be put up on the rocks there on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Um, there was also something else that I came across, but you kind of explained really well in your book, was that after the sinking, there was a lot of reports of some strange stuff happening around the island, uh, particularly to do with the Valencia, one of them being a local First Nations man um, reporting that he somehow or other ended up in this cave uh, and claimed that he saw a lifeboat, I believe with the Valencia's, he said with the Valencia's nameplate on it, um, with, uh, I think it was seven or eight skeletons or, or almost skeletal remains inside. Um, and he came back and reported that to the local news. I believe it was the Times Colonist that would have reported on it, or the Daily Colonist, whatever it was called at the time. Um, and that was kind of that's been a prevailing narrative in the Valencia story. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. And, and also, it's contested. Like there, I remember there was a ship captain, uh, one of the ship captains who was helping transport people back to Seattle and move some of the bodies. Basically, called it rubbish. And I'm wondering. I mean, it's hard. I guess almost you know 100 plus years later to to know how true it was, but just give me your impression of what you thought of that story and that anecdote when you heard about it. Well, Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United and let us introduce you to your new favorite book and learn the story behind the story. History Nerds United. Um, trying to get a sense of the times and the other stories that kind of that were popping up in the newspapers. My impression was that there were indigenous peoples from some of the local communities in the area that were kind of, I guess we would call it today, beachcombing. And uh, they were looking for potential valuables or keepsakes from the Valencia disaster, which was frowned upon by, by, I think the mainstream public in Victoria and Seattle, but I think that it's fair to say that probably anybody that would live close to where a ship went down would kind of probably do the same thing. Well, there's also too, I think the research came across, like they felt entitled to whatever washed up on their shores because it's their land. I mean, that's kind of how they viewed it as well. And I mean, who's to say it's not right. I mean, it doesn't belong to anyone anymore if it's a, if it's a shipwreck. So anyways, yeah, I just, that's, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with what you said about um, the unceded territory. But I would say that even, like, if you look at ships that have gone down 
all over the world, even if they weren't indigenous, even if that wasn't unceded territory, I think there's a certain sense that a beach especially or the intertidal zone is kind of like fair game. Like if you find something, it's like it's yours, right? Absolutely. And treasure. Yeah, exactly. It's a treasure hunt. And like I've like I'm a fan of kind of like making things out of distressed wood and stuff. So like if I find a good you know, piece of two by four or something that's like really like been in the ocean for a bit. I'm grabbing that and I feel like I just found something so awesome. And you add to that the fact that there would be potentially all these really useful items. I I think that that's what was happening. And so this one in, indigenous man, I remember his first name is Tom Klawu or something. It was Klanawa or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he said that he went to the newspaper and he said that they were. Um, basically, it sounded like I like I'm insinuating. It sounded like that they were looking for whatever they they could find. And he went into this cave and found this lifeboat. And the people that were with him, the other people that might have been beachcombing, told him not to tell anybody or they had all agreed not to tell anybody because they wanted to come back because it was kind of difficult to get into this cave and uh, but he felt his moral principle led him to tell this story so my feeling is that he was telling the truth because because of how he came forward with it almost like um he felt morally obligated to and i don't think he should have been dis- dismissed how he was although there were at least, I think a lightkeeper's son had tried to go in and did confirm that there was the, like some pretty heavy odors and there was a lot of flies, but they couldn't get past this big boulder. Um, it was pretty unusual, the cave, because it was, it was a deeper cave, but like where Tom, I'm just going to call him Tom, said he saw this, this lifeboat was beyond this big boulder that was... Um, easy to easier or accessible to climb over during low tide, but whenever the water was rougher or the water was higher, it couldn't really be uh, moved past. So nobody else had able able to been were able to get past this. Although apparently other people said that they did see the boat looking over the rock, but they were also unable to get past the rock. Yeah, and. I think it's a. I think you're right. I think he was telling the truth. My only question, or, or I guess maybe concern about it being linked to the Valencia, is that from what I recall from my research, I don't remember a lifeboat full of people going missing from the ship. Mm-hmm. So that's the only thing where it's like, but but it could have easily been from another ship. There was so many wrecks. I mean, what off the coast of Vancouver Island, west coast of Vancouver Island alone, there's like four or five hundred wrecks alone. Like that's. A pretty almost conservative count. So I definitely think there's some validity to the story, although I do question, you know, whether it was people from the Valencia. But regardless, it's a it's a fascinating story. Uh, and I do like how I mean sadly it's a it's a it's a it's a smaller part of the story, but it does bring First Nations into the story because that is something that um, you know, if I ever get around to writing the book that I want to do, um, that I want to talk a lot about because there was there was they did play a role, especially in the recovery of the bodies and the post sinking. So um at the very least, it's a very interesting story. Another one um, that we were just talking about before, because um, we've heard different versions of this, which is very interesting, but a lifeboat was actually found 
uh, in I think like 1933, somewhere somewhere around there. Um, and, it, and it actually was one of the lifeboats. I think it was lifeboat number five um, from the Valencia. And well, I think what we should do is, I think. Tell me the story that you've heard and that you put in the book. They're very similar with a few different details, but I, I think it's it's fascinating that we both have like a little bit of a different kind of twist on this story. So what did you, so this lifeboat is found? What, what do you how do you reckon from your research it was it was discovered and, and what happened to it? Well, the one thing, and I think you get a sense of this from my book or my writing about ghost lore, is that I tend to use sources. Um, and what that does, that takes the onus off of me, whether or not it was true, <laughs> because I don't know. And, uh, Absolutely. so the story that I believe it was, uh, uh, I can never remember his last name. Uh, we probably don't need to say names anyway. Yeah. It was, it was one of the authors yeah. that's better known for the writing about the Valencia. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> he, he said that, uh, he was told that, um, Somebody found the lifeboat and uh, took off the nameplate with an axe and then donated it to the museum. And then, and then that person's, by kind of a twist of fate, that person's um, grandson, I think it was, ended up being a curator for the museum and took it out of storage and displayed it beside a display uh, with the Pacina Lighthouse. And the reason it's tied to that lighthouse is because the West Coast Trail, as probably a lot of people know, was kind of like created and founded after this huge tragedy um, because they wanted an easier way to for people to potentially get help or also to reach ships in distress on the West Coast. So there was a display that this nameplate was put beside. Um I don't know how much of that, like with anything, I mean, like you think of even like lore in your own family, it's like how much does the story yeah. change over, over time? And, and, uh, but that's the story at, that I heard is that, uh, or that I read is that it was found and that he took, he took, uh, the nameplate off with an ax and yeah. donated it. Yeah. And I think like from, from my, the version that I've heard, cause I've talked to that curator who told that author that story multiple times and um yeah i think the common narrative is that they that the mistake is that everyone thinks the boat was floating and it was found on the water um which is kind of insane that a lifeboat would still be floating like two decades later or even longer almost three decades later mm-hmm. um but john uh who was a former curator of the maritime museum who it was his grandfather who found it it was found he says it was found in a field which makes a bit more sense to me that it would have washed up um, and that maybe someone would have dragged it somewhere just thinking, oh, this is junk, you know, not thinking of the historical relevance of it at the time. And that, yeah, his grandfather ripped the, ripped the nameplate off that. And then what you said about how it got to the museum is, as far as I know, pretty, pretty accurate. So it is interesting how it's almost like a game of telephone sometimes with history where, you know, you know, if one person reports on it and writes about it, um, like you said, we, we use our sources to back up the things that we write about. And sometimes our sources aren't always right and that's both goes for both primary and secondary sources so i thought it was really interesting um another thing that i got from you that i'd seen before but didn't actually get a copy of was this amazing seattle times magazine edition i think it was like their 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 sunday edition or whatever um and it's like basically 
half of the page is like a picture of a ghost ship that looks like the the Valencia coming upon these poor sailors. Uh, and I remember you shared that with me uh, very early on when we started talking, and I used it as part of my my presentation. And now I've actually gotten myself, uh, you know, shilled out the money to get a copy from the archives. Um, but it was the article itself was really interesting because it talks about, and, and I believe it was written. Oh, like the 40s maybe or the the like the 30s the 40s or the 50s like it was only a few decades oh no you know what it was sorry no that's incorrect it was the summer after the sinking it was uh if it's the one that i shared in my book yeah it's 1910 oh okay that, sorry that, so it's 1910 yeah okay. it's it's a yeah a few a years later beautiful newspaper yeah, yeah. Yeah, and basically the article is talking about that all these sailors, and, and you know, uh, sailors of maritime type are very superstitious to begin with, but they talk about seeing this phantom ship come out of the fog, and in, in some cases, it looks like it's going to run them down or run them, basically run them over. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, can you tell me a little bit about that? And, and maybe too, because you're, you know, you are much more um, of an expert in folklore mythology, and I'm wondering, like, that that newspaper article and like that kind of whole concept, I think, really plays into the Valencia story. Um, so yeah, talk about the article and just talk about a little bit about how how you see that fits into like the ghost ship, phantom ship folklore narrative. Yeah, I would say I mentioned newspapers a little bit earlier, and I would say that that article was when the ghost story was born, because whether no matter how popular you know oral stories is, word of mouth. I think that once something especially becomes that big with a full illustration and everything, that's really when it's recorded in history and also when it kind of becomes cemented into the minds of, of people that this is what's happening. It is a kind of a, a se- little bit of a sensational article, but at the same time, I think that... Uh, I mean, it's very cool. <laughs> like, I really, I, I really like it. I, I liked, um, I like the illustration. I kind of like, yeah, me too. Um, everything about it. But that's kind of how these things, I think, start. And especially with, like, when you have like ghost stories, like it's easy to write about a geographical area like Vancouver Island or about British Columbia and kind of like, you know, lump lump all these different types of stories together, but. I think marine ghost lore kind of has its own traditions too mm-hmm. that's separate and so it attracts interest like there'll probably be people that listen to this podcast episode that might not be that interested in Vancouver Island but they're interested in sea lore from around the world the flying dutchman you know exactly that, yeah, yeah. yeah and so my feeling with that newspaper article is that was the article that was like, okay, this story, this is a ghost ship, and this is the story. And what's interesting is that it's it was an American vessel that sunk on in Canadian water, for lack of a better term, and uh, that as a ghost story, even though it's a Canadian ghost ship, so kind of, you know, so to speak, it really, the story really emerged from the United States. That's a really good point, too, because I wonder, um, us both being in Canada, I, I, and I have you know been to some archives in the States and talked to people there, I always get the impression the story isn't that well-known beyond Vancouver Island, maybe Vancouver a little bit. They're the Maritime Museum over there in the archives. They have quite a bit of material on it, but um, it is interesting to me, like, when I've been to Seattle and been to the Puget Sound and, like, been to those archives or talked to those people from those archives... Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 not that they have little interest. It's just like they seem to know less, like less than the people here in Canada about it. And I find that odd, considering the ship sailed from San Francisco. It wasn't even sailing from Seattle. It sailed from all the way down in California. So yeah, that's a that's a really um, that a really astute observation. And also too, I I like the article because, like you said, it was sensational. But it also brings attention to a really important historical event. I mean. The Valencia really did, uh, and this is something I'm trying to convey through you know, this, these articles or these books that I'm going to write about it, is that it did kind of, in a lot of ways, change um, the history of maritime safety on the West Coast. Um, mm-hmm. Sinkings were not nearly uh, as common uh, after this because, like you said, the creation of the West Coast Trail, creation of more lighthouses, like it really, you know, two federal reports were given to the prime minister and the president of the time, and they saw them, you know, like this was a really big deal. So, you know, if it takes folklore and myth to get people to pay attention to something like that, I'm okay. And like you said, it's it's really fun. And that's something that um, I actually wanted to ask you because um, this is a bit of a treat for me to get to sit down and formally interview you, even though we have these conversations all the time. But you are someone who writes about folk- folklore. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Myth a lot. I mean, you're doing it in your first book. You're doing it in your second book. And you, like you said, it is fun. Is it difficult then sometimes to decipher the facts in your research? Um, because, you know, a lot of folklore and myth is sensationalized because... That's how become that's how it becomes you know folklore and myth. So I'm wondering, as a researcher and a writer, like is that something that you have to be extra cautious and aware of when you're going into researching a project? I would say, generally speaking, yes. If you're interested in folklore and you're looking at ghosts, um, urban legends, legends, all this sort of thing, it's almost always there's almost always part of it that's sensationalized by people who really want to believe in it and there's also the paranormal crowd which is really something that you know as you know from our conversations frustrates me to no end because there's some of it is like blatantly made up and uh like the use of mediums like i don't i don't want to like go out 
and say like mediums aren't real or that they don't have access to information, but so often what they have pulled out of the air becomes part of this quote unquote historical story. And it's just, it's really difficult as folklore. So the positive spin on that, I think, is that I've kind of made my unique, my brand or whatever is about, you know, looking at these stories, but also like the the historical backdrop is real. So like if I'm uh, going to research something like, uh, like if I was to come across another ghost ship, I keep saying ghost ship, but really what I mean phantom ship because a ghost ship is like a ghost town. It's an abandoned ship. Right. But uh, um, if I was to investigate another phantom ship, I'm going to go in and I'm going to be my own devil's advocate or, or however they say that I'm going to look at the facts and try to decipher what's real and what's not. And that goes both ways. And the reason that I do that is because I've had my own experiences. I love folklore. So I think it does it a uh, disservice to add to it, but it also does it a disservice to like to lean so far into skepticism too that you're dismissing parts of the story. So like I really enjoy being a person that's telling a story that's different than the what the other people are telling so that um, it's kind of like my own um, like like I said brand or angle on it so that I'm not leaning too far into skepticism or too far into like just being so whimsical that I'm like relying on mediums and such if it's part of the story I have no problem you know talking about ghost hunters and all that and sometimes they add something really interesting and fun to it but to make that a source of and to not say that that's where I got the information from to me is problematic when we're talking about history and a lot of times it really and you know that this is a huge issue for me that it really leans into like sensational fear of like indigenous people or people mm-hmm. of color yeah. or marginalized people like you'll come across so many stories of asylums and uh quote unquote indeed i'm I'm not even going to say the word, actually. I'm not even going to use the quote, but indigenous burial grounds. And it's like rubbish. You start to look at it and you find out it's not even remotely true. And it's just people like really leaning into like fake lore. And sometimes it's intentionally made up. And that's a problem when people are actual historians. To me, that's a problem. Absolutely. And, and, you know, on the other side of that, too, um, you know, I've come across characters I call them characters but they were real people in the Valencia story but mm. kind of the way I've imagined the story and the way I'm writing it it's you know kind of like a novel because it is so dramatic um, you know one of the main characters that you know is kind of my focus you know he writes an op-ed at one point that's like I don't think it's very founded but he basically accuses First Nations of stealing um, stuff off the bodies of the dead who wash up on the shore uh, and, and all this sorts of stuff and when in reality, everything else that I've read about is they were actually just helping um, gather mm-hmm. the dead, and they were actually helping and assisting. And and but it, again, it, it kind of—I mean, it's also a sign of the times. This is 1906. Like obviously, attitudes are very different, but it definitely is is interesting how that colonial sort of narrative gets expelled through these publications of the time, and then that how that's mm-hmm. how it becomes a record of history. Um, it seems like in your case, like there's a balancing act to being you know a historian, like having a historian's lens. 
But then also, you know, I, I've read a lot of historians' books. Some of them are good, some of them are very bland. But you you want to keep it entertaining and fun and interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that balance that you strike. And I think that's something that we've bonded over is that as long as the research is there, you can kind of do whatever you want with the writing. As long as you can say, hey, I can back this up with, you know, X, Y, and Z sources that I've found that say this, right? So that's yeah. that's almost like our out, right? It's like if you have the sources... Yeah. You know, even if you write it in a really fun and engaging way, it's like, well, it doesn't mean it's not true. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, well, I'm gonna we're gonna leave it there for the haunting of Vancouver Island because I think that's we've covered the Valencia pretty pretty well for this. And then, like I said off the top, I gave a pretty good overview of the story itself. I would encourage people to go check out your book to read uh, more about kind of the. I guess I would call it like, yeah, the paranormal, supernatural, folklore kind of side of, of the wreck. Um, I won't recommend any other books on it because hopefully I'll have one one day. <laughs> yeah, to, you better uh, not. Yeah. <laughs> and also I want to one day be able to plug my own book on the sinking that I'm trying to get off the ground. Um, but you're working on another project and you have something else coming out soon. And I don't want to, again, I told you before, no pressure, no spoilers, but <laughs> I would love for you to share, um, you know, anything from, from your, your latest project. And also... Um, I also wanted to ask you too, like, it seems like folklore is something that you are, I almost want to say a little bit obsessed with. Cause like every time I talk to you, you were, that's, you're telling me about new things that you've read and researched is, so it seems like with this second book, it's following the same pattern as the first. Um, this seems like it's, you, you found a niche, I guess it's fair to say, right? Yeah, I, I'd say so. Like, uh, my true passion really is writing fiction. And I, I've had a couple of fiction stories published this year that are coming out. One of them's on Vikings that I'm super stoked about. And one of them's on a sentient ancient tree in its final moments wow. uh, before it falls. It's kind of like thinking about uh, about its life, so to speak. And, wow. And that one's published by Bell Press. And uh, it'll be coming out soon in the are anthology. These, these short called, stories? Yeah. The, that anthology is called The Knot Round wow. My Finger. And then the other one is published by Outlook Entertainment, and it's Elf, called Althingi, which is an Icelandic. Uh, it's not the full title, but um, uh, it's kind of like this Icelandic uh, early governance system, and all these stories are kind of around Iceland and Iceland Vikings and stuff. So both of these also required me to do a little research on folklore as well, and I do have. A fascination with dark folklore especially ghost stories and that and it became a niche when I realized like I mentioned that uh, nobody's really trying to write about the stuff from the same perspective like a lot of stuff is very paranormal based and that to me it's just it's almost a bummer like all these shows and everything that it's like you know suddenly everybody's more interested in you know acquiring evidence than the story itself and and uh it's just kind of it's become boring to me and like i know some people are really into the shows i don't want to dismiss that i just mean like the lose half the audience with everyone's favorite show (laughs) or something yeah Yeah. (laughs) um i just mean like you said like there's a niche there there's something that's not i think especially in our area there's something that's not being tapped on into and also when i was looking at this like um, like I mentioned, Joanne Christensen and Barbara Smith, um, who've writ- written these collections in the 1990s. And, you know, that's 20, 25 years ago, 25 years plus. So, I mean, these were, I think, really interesting and important books at the time. But especially now, like, I'm just like, why? 
can we have collections anywhere in North America, maybe anywhere in the world, that don't include at least some indigenous content? Like, how can you say this is a collection of Vancouver Island? And so, like, I'm, I'm just talking about my own collection here. How could somebody write about Vancouver Island and not include indigenous content when there's, like, indigenous communities, indigenous people, and some of the coolest stories that you could come across... So it was really important when I do these t- this type of thing and, and research and stuff to include Indigenous content, but also for it not to be appropriated. Mm-hmm. So like in The Haunting of Vancouver Island, there's a chapter that's an interview with Chief James Swan, who's Man Housett Hereditary Chief uh, from a Housett. And some of that, uh, there's a little bit of sea lore in there too, um, just about ghost stories from that village, from the Housett village where he grew up. And I want to continue along that vein. So the reason that I'm focusing on a sequel is it's been a while since there's been a proper BC book, like like I said. And also, nobody's really approached it the way that I'm approaching it. And thirdly, when I'm looking at these collections, uh, again, these are long ago. And uh, I don't mean to like discredit what happened then. Um, but... Like they're they're urban, they're lower mainland, and they're Victoria. And I'm like, I am interested in Haida Gwaii. I'm interested in Kitimat. I'm interested in the Nass Valley. I'm interested in Northern BC. I'm interested in the interior. It's like there, BC is massive. It is a massive province. There's so many indigenous groups. Like really, I don't even know how I'm going to balance this book and include like what I've already found in the newspapers, let alone I've, I've been going on these trips now and, re- and talking to people in these locations. But I think that I'm excited about this collection I'm working on. And uh, I think it's going to be unlike anything that we've seen in BC. And I don't mean that to just like toot my own horn. I just, like you mentioned, there's a niche that I've kind of like focusing on. And... I've tried to focus on all these questions that you just asked me because you asked know, me kinda, a few. It was a scatter shot, yeah. yeah but, it was a bit of a scatter <laughs> shot. You're doing a good job. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, the, this is a niche for me, and yeah, it's a passion. Um, but there's also there's also there's a lot of people asking about a sequel, and and so in some ways, it's also like as far as my own writing and the own the success of Vancouver Island, uh, haunting of Vancouver Island, it'll also be kind of like a. Uh, a little bit expected, I guess, and a little bit of a, um, I don't want to say easy win because this has already been a ridiculous amount of work and I've gone through so much to uh, collect these stories together. But uh, yeah, I think it's time to to write a sequel and this is, I think, what people want is a BC-wide sequel. Absolutely. And before you give us a little anecdote about um, the sequel... I wanted to ask you a question because I wonder at any point, did you, were you worried that you know you wrote a book that you know is heavily based in folklore and history, but did you ever worry about getting cornered and pigeonholed as the ghost guy, the ghost writer? Like, was that something you were cerebrally either afraid of or worried about? Like, um, it seems like it could happen, especially with how successful the book has been. Like, I mean, it's sold thousands, tens of thousands of copies. So, um, you know, is that something that afterwards you were like? I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be known as that guy necessarily. Yeah, it's a huge concern for me, to be honest. And, uh, 
yeah, it, like these, some of these books are so ridiculous to me. And when I see a book sitting beside my book that, that, uh, that I've read and I know like is historically factually incorrect, some of it, and especially this stuff that is like, I have ties to indigenous communities. I, I am part indigenous myself, though not enough to identify quote, unquote, my step, my stepsisters, indigenous. Uh, some of my closest friends are indigenous. I just don't like racist stories. And it seems like any time I have brought some of this stuff up and tried to address it, um, this whole like paranormal community has kind of like attacked me, and I've been heavily trolled. And uh, it just—it's really frustrating. It's like there's no win because the paranormal community, like almost as soon as my book was published, one uh, obviously another author that didn't identify themselves wrote a, a negative review on Amazon. There's been tons and tons and tons of um like really low reviews that were taken off by amazon and comments on my blog and stuff so obviously i'm um just by telling the truth and by fact checking um i'm a threat to some people and uh and yeah i just i don't want to be hanging out with mediums i'm quite different i think than most writers being a, a veteran a dis like as you know, and mm -hmm. as some people who've read my book know, I was a veteran and um, I came back from Afghanistan with cancer, went through treatment and ended up with bad nerve damage. And so I had to choose this new path in life and decided to write because it's something I always wanted to do. But unlike most writers, I, I know my way around a fishing rod. I <laughs> chop, chop wood. I paddle surf. I You have a boat. I have an old fishing boat yeah. that I um, that I work on every year, and I keep hoping to get it uh, fully operational. It's an old gill netter, like thirty-two foot, and uh, just yeah, I just I'm more of a a guy's guy than a lot of the people that are writing about ghosts. So there's a whole. I think I'm quite unique when it comes to this world, but you don't fit the mold. I don't I fit. Say. I definitely don't fit the mold. Yeah. And my past life before I was military and overseas was, uh, I was a loss prevention manager for the Hudson's Bay company at the Bay, um, in Vancouver and also in Metro town Burnaby. And what that job was, was it involved arresting people for committing fraud and theft and any other criminal activities on our property and with the bay that uh, downtown vancouver that was also the sky train so like there's all sorts of like uh, drug trafficking everything you can imagine and so we would need to arrest people but before we did we'd have to make sure that all of our elements were there so that we would have to carefully um, make sure that we could prove in court that this person had done this thing we were accusing them of because we didn't have peace officer status to just go and blankly arrest um, citizens. And so we were also part of our job was to write these Crown Council reports. So the importance of this background is that the Crown Council report is you're always your own devil advocate while you're writing because you're like, I'm writing this sentence down. Is it true? How is it going to be counter-argued? And uh, you're kind of like have to look at it with a lot of scrutiny. And I think that uh, when it comes to folklore, it really serves me well. And it means that what I'm writing about is unique. And it also feels like 
like investigating some of these more complex internal um, theft cases or frauds, like there's a, as you know, as a researcher, like sometimes it really is like you're chasing something down and there's a bit of a rush when you find these clues or when you find this research and you go through these old newspapers and you're like, what? Look at this, this old article from 1932 mentions this person's middle initial and that means that I can connect them to this on Ancestry.com and this connects all of a sudden I know where their gravesite is and then now I know who their spouse was and like all of a sudden it's like you've you've traced this thing and you get all this extra information and that's what I do and that's why the stories that I write are unique and they're not like everybody else because this ghost story crowd um, sort of I mean I don't want to blank everybody there's some there's some right. really good researchers that are it's the people leaving the bad reviews yeah. on your site yeah yeah but it's a lot of them group. yeah they just plagiarize me yeah. and they plagiarize other people so when Laziness, i yeah. come forward with these stories it'll be unique yeah. it won't be like something that is read in like 10 books before it won't be something that's been on 10 websites it's going to be something that it's like you know what i went I caught the seven to eight hour ferry over to Haida Gwaii. I interviewed people. I went into the old, you know, Mass Village or I went to Kitimat or I went into the Nass Valley myself, feet on the ground, like anybody that's really trying to dig deep. And uh, I have very unique content. So when this book comes out, it's probably about two years away now. It's probably yeah. not going to be next Halloween. It'll probably be the following Halloween. It's going to have tons of content and lore that nobody's published in British Columbia. And well, so I'm excited about it. Yeah. And, and me too. And, uh, you know, even your first book, there's, um, probably almost every one of my immediate friend group in Victoria has a copy. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's not awesome. because, and that's not because I've given it to them. It's like, that's how unique and special your book is. There is nothing like it, um, here on the Island. Okay. Well, let's end on a note. I want you to give us a teaser, uh, for the book that is a couple years away. Can you give us an anecdote or a story or just a synopsis of a story, uh, something that you've come across that, um, probably not many people know about. And we'll, we'll end on that note. Cause I think it's a good note to end on. Sure. Um, a lot of people don't know that um, one of, and I didn't know this until I started digging, is one of the biggest historic haunted ships in history, um, as far as newspapers go, is located in Va Vancouver Island right now, or just off of Vancouver Island. There is um, a ship. I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, called the, the Melanope. And around 19, around the same time, actually, that the ghost stories started coming out about the Valencia, they were also talking about this being the most haunted ship in the world. And it would sail from port to port. And people were, were like, had all these stories about it. And there's so many stories about the, the couple that died in it. Uh, which I've confirmed that I've through research I found evidence that this couple were real people and they actually did die because their lawyers were um, in court shortly after trying to figure out the ownership of this this boat. But uh, some people say it was cursed and other people say it was super haunted. It ran aground, and now I'm pulling this out of thin air. But I think around <laughs> 1910. And But it did become, in 1911, it became a barge ship for the princess, um, the Canadian princess ships that were 
in uh you know running across the salish sea and from vancouver to victoria to naimo and so they would use this ship as a barge to haul coal from the mine uh, to these uh, bigger fancier ships and the reason that the ship was had been let go by an american company was because it was so haunted and the ghost stories persisted and continued to persist and it was continued to use as a as a barge until 1946 when it was sunk in Royston uh, near Comox as part of their breakwater. And there is 13 other ships that have been sunk in that area. But uh, it was just so exciting to find that one of these ships that is there and you can see it on low tide parts of it is wow. has all this crazy lore. And we're talking like there's I, I've come across illustrations of like the ghost of the woman floating in front of the ship front almost like a figurehead of a ship um like drawings from around that era and they called her the witch of the waves and like other famous i say famous because in my world uh historical <laughs> writers are famous but like uh other uh well-known bc historical writers have written about the ship and stuff but like when i dug i i have again i have uh tons of information that I don't think anybody else has come across. And I'm going to kind of keep that close to the cuff until the book comes out. Uh, because, you know, like I, I badmouth paranormal people and mediums. I'm, no one <laughs> might might want to publish me otherwise. Yeah, so, they um, might want to scoop you too. <laughs> they'll be like, uh, you know, this guy, nobody likes this guy. But uh, if I keep these stories um, somewhat to myself and not tell the, the full story, then uh, hopefully that'll make this book more marketable. And uh, so that I guess that's kind of a teaser story, the Melanope, and it's a very unusual name of of the ship too, um, mm-hmm. and it must have been named speci- for a specific reason. Yeah. Uh, when I researched, I did find come across uh, what the word means, and uh, why don't I keep that as a little bit of a secret for now? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a great teaser. I, I think uh, <laughs> we'll have to wait two years now to read the uh, the whole story when it's been proved and fact-checked <laughs> and probably even discovered more you know like uh they might even find some some more stuff until then so hey i want to thank you for doing this this has been this has been great and uh yeah everyone if you haven't uh it's the perfect time of year the haunting of vancouver island um right now it's the only book you can get by by yourself you got those short stories coming out too though um and then hopefully soon we'll have a we'll have another book and it'll uh, encompass more than just the island yeah, I did uh, self-publish a book back in the day. Okay, uh, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> not gonna it's plug one of those. It? Thi- it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, let's just kind of forget that. That. <laughs> uh, although there's a lot, I do write about that world a lot. It's it's also the world of ghosts, but it's like a kind of like a mixture between a ghost world and like I don't know if you remember that old series, The Ultimate Warrior. Uh, or I think I think that's what it was called. Where they'd be like, "Oh, who would win between a Viking and a samurai?" Yeah, right. Yeah, so like yeah. it's kind of like a ghost world where it's like it's very um, dystopian and very harsh, grim, dark. And I still write in this world, and that's my favorite favorite world to write in. But like, it's a, it was an older self published book. Could have used a better polish, like editor and stuff. Well, maybe it'll come back yeah. at some point. You know, like who says you yeah. can't? I've written, yeah. I've written sequels to it. I've written wow. lots of short stories about in that world, and that's at some point, if all on a long enough timeline, if if things work out my way, that'll be the world that I I write in, and I call that world uh, Shadow Empire. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a fun uh, it's a fun thing because the Kingdom of Heaven is more 
oppressive and sexist and um, just very ruthless. And so the afterlife, people just, they end up in the afterlife and all of a sudden they're like, well, this was supposed to be a lot nicer. <laughs> and uh, like, kind of like, uh, so a lot of ghosts and stuff are like outlaws. Wow. So. That's fascinating. Thanks, man. Hopefully, it, <laughs> hopefully someday something I'll do something with it. But. I'm sure you will. And uh, yeah, I, I, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey, anytime. I I am also looking forward to your book on the Valencia. And like, people don't know this, but I'm just going to quickly say this: that uh, I try to put a little pressure on <laughs> on Tyler to get this done too, because he's got a lot of stuff that I was unable to find, and he spent a lot more time. And this is going to be a great book. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Yeah, and you can read it in 2052. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. It's 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 an ongoing thing, as you know. It's when you got other life responsibilities too. But it, it is something that I'm I'm committed to, and hopefully it'll come to fruition one way or another. So oh, it will. Um, it in will. the meantime, though, they'll have to just they'll have to settle for your book because I don't know if mine's ever coming. Out. <laughs> it will. Yeah, it will. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shannon. You can buy his book, The Haunting of Vancouver Island, Supernatural Encounters with the Other Side, where you get your books, and I highly recommend you pick it up. There's a bunch of other fascinating stories that Shannon has unearthed with his diligent research. If you'd like to support the show on a monthly basis, you can stop by my Patreon page. Or, if you just want to make a one-time contribution to say thanks, you can buy me a coffee. Both are linked in the description. Right now, I'm donating 25% of all funds from my Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee to the Veterans Transition Network and the Afghan-Canadian Interpreters as part of my running series on my other podcast, True to the Story. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another episode of the Missing and Unexplained podcast with me, Tyler Hooper. <laughs>